Alright, so today we're continuing in chapter 6 of Revelation. And let's just go back to 6.1 so we can remember where we are here. 6.1, now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. So what we're doing is we're unrolling this scroll and the Lamb of God who was found worthy to open the scroll... It looked for a minute like nobody was going to be able to open it. John cried. And the lamb was found worthy and can open the scroll. So he breaks the first seal. So what's happening is the lamb is breaking these seals and unrolling the scroll. And every time he breaks a seal and unrolls the scroll, uh, a story comes to life. And we've seen the first five seals broken. And now we're going to see the sixth seal. But before we do... Let's just skip over to Revelation 15.1 real quick so we can just see where we're headed here. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So what we see here, we've got seven seals, and the seventh seal is seven trumpets, and the last trumpet is seven bowl judgments. And of the bowl judgments is the fullness of the wrath of God. We will see God's righteousness and His justice actually come to complete fruition. So that's where we're headed. We've got seals and then trumpets and then, and then bowls. And right now we're finishing the seals. So let's go back to chapter 6 and we'll do the sixth seal. Verse 12, I looked when he opened, he would be here, the lamb. So the lamb keeps breaking the seals and unrolling the scroll. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind." Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? So we're getting progressively more severe as we go through these incidents. Now we have some great cosmic events that are taking place. The first thing is a great earthquake. The Greek words here are megas seismos. You probably could have figured that one out, right? And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth like a fig tree drops its late figs. Well, this, these particular things are, are interesting because they are predicted as far back as Joel. Look at Joel 2.31. Joel 2.31 says, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. This phrase, day of the Lord, is something that basically doesn't have a technical meaning. It's, it's a day when God is acting and usually bringing judgment. 
But the great day of the Lord is basically what we're talking about now in Revelation. But there's multiple days of the Lord. The great and awesome day of the Lord, I think, is is basically what we're talking about here. Perhaps it refers to several events. But for sure, the sun is going to be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. That's all the way back in Joel. This reference, Joel 2.31, is quoted by Peter in Acts 2. 20. Acts 2.20, Peter is giving a sermon and he says, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. But let's look at the context in which he's saying this. It's very interesting. If you go back to uh, verse 14, this is after the day of Pentecost. And people are speaking in other languages and they accuse the people there of being drunk. And Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, it'd be nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. So that is what had just happened. The Holy Spirit is now coming to live inside of us as part of our experience of being a child of God. The Holy Spirit came upon people and indwelt them in Old Testament times, but the Spirit would come and go. It was for special service. Now the Spirit has come to indwell. And brand new amazing things are going to happen because of that Spirit. Verse 19, I will show wonders in heaven above and then signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood. So it seems what's happening here is what Peter is saying, a new age has been inaugurated. And we know that now. It's the church age. The age of the Gentiles. We had the age of Israel and and specifically the 69 weeks of years that Daniel spoke of where the Jewish nation is the focus of history. But when Jesus was rejected, that clock stopped and a new clock began. And it starts with the Holy Spirit being poured out. And it's going to end with these cosmic disturbances we are now speaking of. Jesus also spoke of this. He spoke of it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Let's just look at Mark thirteen twenty-four. But in those days, Jesus said that his words, After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Now the first time the Son of Man came, what did He come with? Service. What else? Lowliness. He came as the bondservant to serve. And He's saying, there's going to be these great cosmic disturbances, and then I'm going to come back in power and glory, and then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds. And in this particular context, if you go to Mark 13, 14, this is the particular tribulation he's speaking of that follows, because he says, after this tribulation. So if you look at verse 14, it says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, 
And what we know is in the 70th week of Daniel, this seven-year period that begins when the Antichrist makes a, co- a covenant with Israel, then the, and the Jewish clock then ticks, the Gent- age of the Gentiles now ends, and the age of, of the Israel begins again, uh, this seven-week period. In the middle of that week, there'll be an abomination of desolations. And that's when the Great Tribulation starts this three and a half years this 42 months which were it not shortened the whole world would not survive and he says when this happens this tribulation after this you're going to see these great signs take place these cosmic disturbances so these are things now happening that have been predicted from Joel and then from Jesus and then from Peter Peter obviously had been taught this from Jesus that this is part of what is now happening and we are an integral part of this age the stars of heaven fell to earth as a fig tree drops its late figs now this is a very interesting one because of some of the verses that we're going to see in Revelation uh, shortly let's just look at a few of them Revelation 8.10 then the third angel sounded we're now in the trumpet judgments and the, the, the third trumpet has sounded And a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. Hold that thought. Go to Revelation 9.1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Isn't that interesting? All of these words, by the way, there's the Greek word aster, like asteroid, star. So this star is an angel. So this angel falls from heaven and is given a key to the bottomless pit. Just keep that in mind. Revelation 12, 4. His tail, now we're seeing a sign in the heaven, we're seeing the dragon. And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. Well, what are these stars? 12, 9. Look at 12, 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels cast with him. So the third of the stars equals a third of the angels. So what is being cast to earth here? The stars of heaven falling to earth. Is it physical stars falling to earth? Or is it the angels falling to earth? Or is it both? Are they somehow connected? We will also see, as we unroll these events, that a third of the stars are going to not be visible anymore to the human eye. You know, this is very fascinating. C.S. Lewis, I think, picked up on this in his space trilogy and in other writings he had in the Narnia Chronicles, for example. He actually has an angelic creature physically connected with a star. So when one does something, the other does something with it. Maybe that's part of what's going on. But in any event... We see once again here the intricate connection between what's going on on heaven and what's going on on earth. Remember, we're in the throne room here. And we break the seal and the rider on the white horse is given the authority to go conquer. And death and Hades are given the authority to go and execute death on a fourth of the earth. And we're going to see this over and over again. One of the main messages in this book, God is on His throne. No matter how out of control everything looks on earth, all of it's being authorized. So these heavenlies have a tremendous connection. And it's interesting, we're going to see before long, the heavenlies are going to be confined to earth in terms of Satan and his angels. You know, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities and powers where? In the heavenly places. Because that's where the powers are now. We can see that in Job. They go back and forth. Well, before long, their access to heaven is terminated. And they're only on earth. And things get a lot worse when that happens. Angelic events, cosmic disturbances are all interconnected somehow. I'll be fascinated to find out exactly how that happens. We're only, I think, given hints here that that's the case. Then the sky recedes as a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. This term, every mountain and island, this term, every mountain and island, it's the same word that's used when they speak of Paul and say, the whole world has gone after him. Now when they say the whole world has gone after them, do they mean that every single person in the world has gone after them? Obviously not, because they haven't gone after them. What they mean is uh, uh, people from all over the world are going after them, of all sorts. And that's what the idea is here. This doesn't necessarily mean every island and every mountain. But mountains and islands all over the globe are being affected. And the sky is receding like a scroll. Now this word scroll is interesting. It's the word uh, biblion. Everywhere else in the New Testament I could find that Biblion shows up, it's translated book. Because that's what we would have. We would have book, not scroll. In this one instance, they translated it scroll because we don't roll up books. Everywhere else it's book because they had scrolls and we have books. And it's it's something you read. But in this case, it's something you roll up. So they translated it scroll. Again, I don't think the main point here is for us to discern exactly what causes the sky to roll up. If I was going to guess, I would say this sounds like the ring of fire around the Pacific Rim goes into massive action again. And this sounds to me like volcanic activity because islands are usually volcanic related. Most mountains that are on the seacoast are volcanic related. And you certainly could see the earth roll up and all sorts of um, effects of the air by volcanic activity. But I don't know what it is. When Mount Pinatubo blew up, it was just one volcano. It totally disrupted the weather patterns. Well, just think about if that happens with, say, a hundred volcanoes or a thousand volcanoes all going off at one time. And maybe even magma coming in from from the ocean floor. You know, we kind of sit on a ticking time bomb. I I think we sort of know that already. I'm always fascinated by my own reaction to temperature. You know, when it's 72 degrees, man, I'm so comfortable outside. 78, it's really nice. 85, it starts to get a little hot. 95, it's comfortable in the shade, hot in the sun. 100, man. Well, you know, you just think about how much the earth has to wobble for the temperature to change 50 degrees. And suddenly, it's, life is not, uh, or sorry, Earth is not habitable anymore. We're so fragile here. We, we, we tend to think that everything's so steady. It's not. We're all, well, the only reason we're, we're so steady is because God's hand is holding all this. And when He authorizes disturbances to happen, they're going to be substantial. So then the kings of the earth, verse 15, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man. So who else is there, right? If you've got every slave, every man, every ruler, every great man, isn't that everybody? 
So everybody universally says this. Obviously, when you have this kind of cosmic disturbance, this kind of climate change, we've got to finally stop fracking. That's what they say here. No, they do not say that, thankfully. See, this is one of the most encouraging things about all this. You actually have reality happening here. Because they say, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. It looks like atheism finally goes on hard times. Nobody is saying here anymore crazy stuff about why things happen. Everybody gets, everybody, from the smallest to the greatest, realize this is Jesus Christ bringing wrath on the earth because we rejected Him. Well, that brings up something that is uncomfortable for modern-day evangelicals. Because isn't Jesus a pacifist? Isn't Jesus a very mild-mannered guy, little limp-wristy, who hates wrath now because there's the Old Testament God who's vengeful? But then he grew and became the New Testament God that just all is about love. Carry a flower in his hair, maybe? Well, no, of course not. God is God. God never changes. Let's just look at the idea of God's wrath. Let's look at Romans 12, 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Now we like wrath, don't we? We like to pour out wrath on anyone that didn't give us what we wanted. We like to give them anger, rejection, perhaps a fist in the face, because they defied us. And the Bible tells us, don't ever do that. We don't get to be the authority in the universe. In fact, God says, I make the rules, and I am the enforcer of the rules. Don't make things about you. You're not able to handle it. I, God, am able to handle it. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to what? Wrath. Who's wrath? God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now, this it is written, it comes from Deuteronomy, and that's actually speaking of Israel. And God is telling Israel before they go in the promised land, you're going to disobey me. And when you do, I'm going to repay you for your evil. But then I'm going to bring you back. Because when I bring you wrath, it's for your restoration. Well, in the case of Revelation, it's restoration as well. It's not restoration necessarily of these people, however. You would think that if they recognize this is all happening because the Lamb of God is causing it to happen, that they would fall down and say, God, have mercy on us. But their rejection is complete. Their hearts are stone because they just say, just hide me from the wrath of the Lamb. Of course, in the intervening time, until God's wrath is made full, God left us human government, church government. Because since we can't handle bringing wrath ourselves, we need help from our fellow man. And we need the ability to say, go to the leaders of the church and say, I have a dispute with this person and I can't reconcile it. Would you help us? Because we can't be objective. We need the ability to go to a court and say, this person won't pay me. I think he owes me this money. Would you help us reconcile this? 
Okay, That is God's wrath. That's God's justice. Because government has the moral authority to hurt people and kill people and incarcerate people and be doing good. In every other context, that's bad. Kidnapping is bad. Assault is bad. But when a police officer does it, it's supposed to be good. And if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, it is. Let's look at one other verse, Revelation 16, 1-7. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go out and pour out the bowl. So now, you know, it's seven seals. Seventh seal is seven trumpets. Seventh trumpet is seven bowls. So he's now giving the order to go pour the bowls. And the bowls are the wrath of God on the earth. That's the name of the bowls. So they go and start pouring the bowls. And then look at verse 6. Well, let's start in 5. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You're righteous, O Lord, the one who is and was and who is to be. Because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for that is their just due. That's what they deserve. We all kind of know this. I've, I've mentioned this multiple times, but Osama bin Laden died, and we had a national celebration. Because he it was his just due. We know this instinctively as people. We saw the martyrs under the altar... And they were saying, how long are you going to wait before you give our murderers their just due? And God said, well, here's a robe. Wear this robe because it's going to take a little while longer because there's not enough of you yet. Got to wait till all your brothers and sisters get here that are going to be martyred and then they're going to get their just due. The bowls that are poured out are an answer to prayers for justice. And these prayers have been going up for millennia. But justice will happen. So now chapter 7. After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow in the earth on the sea or any tree. So God is on His throne. We're in the throne room. That, that's emphasized over and over again. Anytime something happens on earth, it is authorized in heaven. It's either happening because of the trigger of the seal or there's a specific authorization being given. But now we're reminded that God is in control of nature as well. Remember when Jesus was in the boat, He calmed the wind and it stopped. And the disciples marveled and said, Who is this that even calms the wind? Well, it's the Creator. And so now we're reminded God is in control of nature because it, it looks like Nature is blowing up just like there's supernatural activity blowing up and massive negative things are happening. But once again, nature is under God's control. Nothing's going to happen unless it's authorized. Verse 2, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. So now we're breaking the seals. But those seals got there in the first place when God waxed them and sealed them. And they weren't allowed to be open, remember? Nobody could open this book. And this book is the culmination of human history. It's the bringing in of justice and restoration. It can't be opened. Nobody's allowed to open it except Jesus because He was found worthy. And He's allowed to open it. And so now history can come to its full culmination. 
Well, that same seal is now coming in to be used again. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth. To whom it was what? Granted. We're we're in the throne room. Nothing happens that isn't authorized. I don't know how many times we're going to get this repeated. I hadn't counted, but it's a bunch. God's on His throne. No matter how bad things get, God is on His throne. He wants us to be great witnesses. That's the point. And He granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying... So, and He cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. What's the seal do? It's only mentioned one other time that I could find. Look, look at 9.4. This is the scorpions, these man scorpions that we'll see before too long. And these man scorpions were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So at least one thing that this seal is going to do is to protect from some of the things that are happening that are demonic inspired that are going to bring torment. Now obviously it doesn't protect people from death because there's lots of martyrs happening. And in fact, Revelation tells us that from this point forward it's a special blessing to be killed as a martyr. But it is protection. We are said to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's our protection. No one can break that seal except the Lamb of God. And the Lamb of God is... Him to whom we are owned. So that's one of the things. We don't have to worry about being accepted by God. When we believe on Jesus, we're sealed in the Holy Spirit. That's a done deal. It's not going to be unwound. These rewards that we're talking about, of whether we're going to be an overcomer or not, well, that depends on whether we walk in that Spirit or whether we don't. And the seal is on the foreheads. This is interesting. The forehead... One of the things that I saw is that the priest, the high priest, had a crown on his forehead, and on it was written, Holiness to the Lord. But it's the idea that it's right there, it's, it's prominent. The Jews were told to put the, the verses of God on their forehead and on their hand. Hands what you do with, and your forehead's what you think with. So have it on your mind, have it in your experience. Do, think and do, think and do. So is a representative of that this seal is a preeminent thing in our life. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And so here are the 12 tribes, Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And each one, it says, of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now this is interesting because these tribes are not the original 12 tribes. There's a a tribe left off, and it's the tribe of Dan. Dan's left off, and Manasseh's substituted in. These are not the 12 tribes that got the land parcels. When they divvied up the land, Levi was left out, because Levi did not get land. The priests, they got cities. And the Joseph allocation went to two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. But Manasseh now is substituted for Dan and Ephraim's left off. Kind of fascinating, isn't it? Always 12, but the 12 kind of rotates. And I think part of this is because 12 is the symbol for organizational fulfillment. How many disciples were there? 
12. When one dropped out, what did they do? Found two guys that were equally qualified. But instead of having 13 like I would have done, they cast lots and only had 12. God, I have 12. So this idea of 12 and one is always getting substituted for seems to be kind of always going on in the Scripture. I'm not sure what that's talking about. Perhaps, do you have any? Have you ever heard about that? Why one keeps getting substituted for? No. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure why that is. But maybe it's maybe it's talking about like we get grafted in. There's always a, there's always room for you. Maybe is what that's saying. So we've got organizational fulfillment, and a thousand is the number for bringing in fulfillment of an age. Like God will say, I will give blessings to a thousand generations. You know, that's the fulfillment of an age. The millennial kingdom is going to be a thousand years. So you get organizational fulfillment and age fulfillment combined together. Now, what is that talking about? Well, I don't know. I don't know if this is a literal, figurative, or both. I would guess it's both. But I think what it's telling us here is Israel is about to be completely fulfilled. Is the, everything about Israel, all the promises, the promises of Ezekiel about the temple, the promises of the millennial kingdom, the lion will lay down with the lamb, the promise of the Messiah sitting on the throne, the promise of the land and the boundaries that have never been fulfilled, all these things are about to come to complete and total fruition. So we've got this sealing that happens. And, and I, this is teaching us a lot of things that... Even though God is authorizing all these things, nothing's going to be harmed unless He allows it to be harmed. And He's still caring for His people. That's, that's really clear. So verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, people. So we've, we're going to have a total fulfillment of Israel and all the promises to Israel. But the blessing of those grafted into Israel is not suspended here. It's going to be fulfilled along with Israel. So every tribe, every nation, every tongue standing before where? The throne. So we're, we're back in the throne room. God is on the throne. God is on the throne. Who else is going to be participating in the throne. Those who are martyred. Who else is going to be participating on the throne? All the overcomers who are going to reign with Him. Now, if you're on the earth when things are spinning out of control in any era, you don't think in terms of, boy, this is just right around the corner from me being in charge. What you think of is things are out of control. I might get killed. And again, the message here is, be a faithful witness, do not fear death, and I will give you power over all nations with me. It's a tremendous promise. And and one of the reasons why it's hard to keep in mind is because that's not what we're experiencing. So if we read, hear, and believe, we get a special blessing. Remember that was promised to us, a special blessing. And doesn't that make sense? If you know there's hope in horrible situations, you're going to have a much better time of it than if you think all is lost and this is a time of despair. So here are these people in tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, the one opening the seals, clothed with white robes. White robes is always a symbol of righteousness in the Scripture. With palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. 
blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, if I could, I would break into the Messiah song that's written from this. I just can't sing it very well, but I recommend you go and... and when I go along and I read this, I stop in a blessing, honor, wisdom. Anyway. Then the one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, this three and a half years of, of sorrow and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Will. So we're in the throne room. The great tribulation has, is, is going on or is about to be culminated. You know, we don't know exactly what's happening at what time in here. This is not necessarily sequential. But tears will be wiped away. We're in the throne room and the tears haven't been wiped away yet. I think that's really important. Because tears are associated with learning. You remember when you tried to learn to ride a bike and you cried because you couldn't get it? Or maybe... You were running the hundredth wind sprint, and you just didn't think you could do it anymore, and you would have cried if you could if you if you weren't afraid of even worse things happening. Or maybe you cry yourself to sleep because you think you're a terrible mom. Or who knows what? Learning is difficult, and it brings tears. You know, when you're young, you don't have any wisdom, but you have a lot of energy. But you cry a lot because you don't have any wisdom, and you do stupid stuff. And then you get old. And now you have wisdom, hopefully. But you cry for a different reason. You cry because you stood up. And it, everything hurts. And you don't have the energy to apply all that wisdom. But you know what's going to happen? We're going to get to a time when the learning has completely been fulfilled. All the stuff we learned about knowing God by faith, it's going to be ingested. And at that point... Whatever mistakes we've made, whatever wood, hay, and stubble got burned up, there's going to be pain associated with that. That's not going to be pleasant. But you know what it's going to do? It's going to teach us. We're going to have a full culmination of everything we learned. And we're going to have a new body that doesn't hurt when you get up in the morning. In fact, you don't even have to get up in the morning. You don't have to go to bed anymore. Because there's no more night. And there's going to be this new era where we're going to get to take all this wisdom that we had, if we got it, and apply it with great energy. It's exciting. So these people that are martyred have a special intimacy with Jesus. He says, I'm going to keep these people a little closer to me because they're so precious to me. They were faithful witnesses. You know, any martyreo is someone that didn't fear death, didn't fear rejection, didn't fear death of relationships, didn't fear death of their connection with the world system. And instead said, I'm going to follow Jesus irrespective of these negative consequences in this world. That's a martyr. These martyrs took that and also were physically killed. 
And God has a special place in His heart for these people. The ones who came through the tribulation. So the tribulation is a horrific time, but every horrific time comes with an amazing opportunity. We don't need to be sorry for the people that go through the tribulation. And in fact, every one of us has an opportunity to go through tribulation in our life. Just a couple other things. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. You'll see there in your translation, probably the word belongs is in italics. That's because the translator added it. Salvation to our God is actually how it reads. Down in this blessing, thanksgiving and honor and power and might in verse 12. B, B is, is italicized. It's honor, power, and might to our God forever and ever. And of course, this is not the granting of glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, and power. This is the recognition. So I think the translators did okay by presuming the word belongs goes into belongs to our God because that would follow the same pattern. We're recognizing that salvation belongs to you. We're recognizing that salvation stems from you. But you know, it could also mean that there's a deliverance that's now being experienced by God. Think about it. Every time we see the word salvation, something's being delivered from something. And anything, most anything, can be delivered from something. And I thought about this, what could God be delivered from? Obviously can't be delivered from sin. Obviously can't be delivered from death. Those are the things we care about being delivered from. But you know one thing God is delivered from? The frustration of having His creation marred, scarred, and darkened. And that's about to end. That's about to end. When we get to the end of the seventh trumpet... The kingdom is going to be pronounced. This has now happened. And the seven bowls come and they clean it up and then Jesus comes back on a white horse and His kingdom is brought to bear in a physical way. And then we're going to see the new heaven and the new earth and the culminating event of human history when heaven comes to earth and God dwells with men physically and tangibly. Not as a Not as a shielded God like Jesus was when He came in human form and shielded His glory. But in full glory. So full of glory that we don't even need the sun. That's where we're headed with this. And He's telling us this because dark days come first. There's an old bluegrass song, The Darkest Hours Just Before Dawn. Well, that's what we're going to experience. So tribulation, it's a part of our life. There's going to be a great tribulation. But we can take this message and apply it now. Because if, as we go through tribulation, we focus on being a great witness, not fearing death, any kind of death, death of relationship, physical death, we are being the martyreo that God's called us to be. And no matter what happens in our lives, God authorized it. Whether we understand it or not. And He let it happen to us Or let us experience this because it's in our best interest. If we can embrace that and believe it, then we are winning. God bless you.